You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. Explaining the Soviet Union's invasion of Afghanistan is not hard. They sent in troops to help a friendly government, a government which they had a relationship and a treaty with, at the request of the leader of that government. Except that they ended up killing that leader. The Russians went in to secure a seaport, as they always wanted and as Americans always suspected they did. Except that most of the fighting was elsewhere. They didn't really get a seaport out of the whole deal. And in any case, prior to the invasion, they had basic control of the country's government and could have used a seaport for whatever purposes they wished. But probably most puzzling is this. No one at the upper levels of the Soviet Union may have ordered an invasion at all. It's a puzzling matter, and one that's all the more so because the Soviets never actually allowed their press to cover the operation, let alone allow Western media in. Add to that that it's a culture as foreign to us as the planet Mars, and a nation that was for a long time our enemies. Yet, we ache to delve into this conflict 30 years ago, as we now approach just about the same time span in the same country, Afghanistan, as the Soviets spent there. We'll start in a strange place. It is Prague, Czechoslovakia. The year is 1968. The Czechoslovakian government is a member of the Warsaw Pact. So America and its allies in Western Europe have the NATO Pact. Soviets and the allies in the Eastern Europe formed the Warsaw Pact, countries that ostensibly had their own governments but that were really under the control and influence of the Soviet Union. Czechoslovakia was a respected member of the Warsaw Pact, especially because their troops were guarding the border with the dreaded West. But there were tensions. In 1966, the Czechoslovakian government began pushing the Soviet Union, pushing for a more independent role in setting policy. They would remain aligned, of course, with the Warsaw Pact, but as an ally, not as a subject. They wanted more control over their own foreign policy. This culminated in the Prague summer of 1968, when demonstrators filled the streets of Prague seeking democratic reforms. Proposals were made to democratize the country, but this had foreign policy implications as well. They wanted to make membership in the Czechoslovakian armed forces not dependent on whether you were a member of the Communist Party or not. This was troubling, of course, but what really troubled Moscow was a defense document 
that was leaked to the Soviet Union that showed that the Czechoslovakian government, while remaining in the Warsaw Pact, wanted to base its defense on its own interest and not Moscow's, and to make deals that made sense for Czechoslovakia, not for the whole Warsaw Pact. Chillingly, to Moscow's ears, the document also stated that perhaps the Western threat to Czechoslovakia was overstated. On August 20th, 1968, Moscow decided to act. On August 20th, 1968, a plane of 100 agents arrived at the airport in Prague. These KGB agents, plain clothes, secured the airport and stopped all traffic going in. An A-12 large Soviet aircraft transport arrived. Then another, then another, giant planes loading tanks, troop carriers, and personnel. From all corners of Czechoslovakia, troops piled in, some 500,000 in total. Not only from the Soviet Union, though principally so, but also from East Germany, Poland, and all the other Warsaw members that chose to participate. By the night of August 20th, Soviet troops were en route to every Czechoslovakian city. The Red Army filled the roads. By August 21st, they had entered Prague. The Czechoslovakian government was paralyzed by the sudden show of force. They ordered their own troops to remain in the barracks. They did not want a Warsaw Pact on Warsaw Pact civil war. But they were not quiet. The president of Czechoslovakia condemned the attack on the radio. This reached a Western audience. It was clear that the Soviets were invading, and this was not merely helping a friendly ally. Protesters took to the streets to condemn the Soviet invasion. They were quickly dispersed. The Czech army barracks, where the troops were, were surrounded. For Czechoslovakia, this was a violation of their freedoms, but one they could not resist. To the West, it was a sign that the Soviets would enforce their control of Eastern Europe. The Soviets, for their part, saw this as an amazing tactical success, a refinement of Soviet military power, an extreme confidence boost. If they acted quickly and with the overwhelming force of one of the world's best military forces and perhaps the best, they could meet any objective that the Soviet Union wanted. The leader who had ordered the attack on Czechoslovakia to suppress this government uprising was Leonid Brezhnev. And 11 years later, he would be the same leader who would decide about policy in Afghanistan. Thinking about Czechoslovakia gives you an idea of the Soviet mind, particularly the mind of the Soviet army, the KGB, and the top leaders. But the Afghanistan story is a little different. It starts with a not with a revolution of an already communist nation, but a revolution of communists within a nation, the communist takeover of, the, of a country that the Soviets were always seeking. But this one took the Soviets by surprise. The Soviets did everything they could to foster third world revolutions, and they had supported the Communist Party in Afghanistan, led by Mohammad Tariki, a professor, and his younger lieutenant, Amin. When the military ruler of, of Afghanistan, Daoud, was overthrown in 1978. The KGB learned about it only on the radio. The takeover was the PDP, the People's Democratic Party, 
of Afghanistan, which was the Communist Party that had been agitating government since the 1950s. The Soviets sent their advisors in, their ambassador in, and hoped to have the best relationship possible with the new surprise communist government. From the beginning, though, Tariki and Amin began to quarrel, each leader's developing factions, and going to the Soviets to complain about the other faction. The Soviets were divided on what to do about this, but they were not divided in their concern. They were very concerned about their neighbor to the south. Amin, the younger leader, seemed particularly brutal, torturing opponents, making arrests, many innocent people, and generally oppressing the country. The BDP were communists, and the policy of land redistribution, atheism, greater rule for women in society, did not work well with this tribal culture, one with the strong Islamic influence. The Afghan army and Soviet-trained tank battalions loyal to Tariki and Amin were infiltrated with religious zealots, many of whom mutinied or just awaited the moment where they could do so. The Soviets had spies among the units, but soon found that they were not getting information from them anymore. In the town of Herat, a vicious uprising of Muslims took place as an army unit mutinied. Afghan army soldiers, government officials, and Soviets who were loyal to the government were killed. It was finally put down with Soviet-advised and equipped Afghan army units, but not so easily. The uprising in Herat could be seen as the beginning of everything in Afghanistan that we know. It gave the opponents of the government the confidence that they could stand up, even to a power that was backed by the Soviet military. It gave birth to the same forces that we are fighting today. But the rebellion was put down. And Tariki and Amin asked for Soviet help now. Not just advisors, not just equipment, but real ground troops to fight the rebellion. And they continued their feud. Soviet KGB and officials tried to patch up things to no avail. They squabbled over who would be in the ministries who would control the important offices of government. A supporter to Tariki, the president, controlled the security forces of Afghanistan. Amin didn't like this. He wanted his own person in charge. Eventually, Tariki agreed and made his security minister an ambassador and sent him away, placing Amin loyalists in that agency. This was a huge tactical mistake in Tariki's quarrel with Amin. The action also did little to placate Amin. It got to the point where there were warring camps within the government and neither talking. Finally, Soviet military and KGB officials in Afghanistan tried to arrange a meeting between the two, Tariki and Amin. Amin refused to go to the presidential palace and talk to Tariki, fearing that he would be killed. With a Soviet guarantee of safety, Amin did decide to go to the presidential palace. The palace guards and Amin's own bodyguards ended up getting into a scuffle before Soviet troops could even intervene, and one of Amin's guards was killed. Amin fled. He would have no further meetings with Tariki, and he was resolved more than ever to take over the government. Fearing for their lives, Tariki's remaining ministers fled to the Soviet Union. Eventually, Tariki was arrested and, despite Soviet protests, died of a sickness in custody. Amin was now leader of Afghanistan. It's now 1979. Despite Soviet 
fears that Amin would use his new power to move towards the West. This is something that the Soviets had seen with Sadat in Egypt. Amin stayed loyal to the Soviet Union and continued to request military aid, men on the ground. Still, Amin's actions were a problem, a problem that went all the way to the Politburo. The Afghan government was not managing the country well, and the government was not very popular, despite his insistence that the death of Tariki was the result of his illness and not anything that Amin did. The Soviet Politburo didn't buy it. And if Amin did indeed kill Tariki, as the Soviets of course suspected, this was a problem, because Tariki had received in one of his visits to the Soviet Union a promise of safety directly from Leonid Brezhnev himself. Not only were there geopolitical implications, there were personal credibility implications in Amin's action. But more important than all, despite his friendliness, they still felt that Amin would, like Sudat before him, go to the West and cut a deal. The Soviets decided it was time to act. But what kind of action? A big invasion? Like the invasion we know or we're discussing? No, that wasn't the plan. Brezhnev and Politburo member Andropov, who would end up taking over after Brezhnev's death, decided that an invasion would be too much. It would trigger a response, perhaps, from the West. They would poison him, and with Tariki no longer available, they would place Tariki's security minister in the presidency. The first attempt to poison Amin by putting a poison in his drink failed because of the bubbles in his Coca-Cola apparently dissolved the poison. The next attempt was coordinated with an action from Bagram Air Force Base and a movement of troops from the north to seize the palace and secure the main roads. It was when the commander of the Air Force Base said that Amin had loyal armies and greater firepower was needed that this memo is as close as we get to anything documented that the Soviet Union actually had an invasion plan. So bungled and cross-communicated was the attempt to kill Amin that when a Soviet spy who was a cook at the palace poisoned his chicken dinner, this time with effect, palace staff called the Soviet embassy for help. The embassy, in fact the foreign ministry of the Soviet Union, had no idea that the KGB and military were planning an operation to kill Amin. This was, they were kept out of the loop on that. Soviet ambassador had no idea. So, as far as the Soviet doctors at the embassy were concerned, Amin was being poisoned by rebels and they needed to save him. They rushed over to the palace and they put Amin on IVs, flushed the poison out of his system, and actually restored him to health. They did this, however, just as KGB and Spetsnaz, these are special uh, Soviet special forces, busted into the palace, firing guns, and killed Amin, nearly killing the doctors too. In that, Soviets had achieved their goal. They had killed this leader who was causing them so many problems and who had refused to listen to Soviet advice and had killed his rival against Soviet wishes. They felt they had stabilized the country under a puppet government. An additional irony occurred during this attack on the palace and the attempt to kill Amin. About 10 hours after the attack was successful and the palace was secured, 
the palace was attacked. But attacked not by Afghanis. It was attacked by Soviet paratroopers, who had been sent on a separate operation, not aware of the KGB effort. It took a good two hours in which Soviet Union units were fighting Soviet Union units before the attack was canceled. Despite that little flub, the Soviet operation was largely successful, and they now had control of the country. They had control of the capital city of Kabul. Now came the question, what to do? Bakala was the president of Afghanistan, but he did not have a functional army to protect his government. It was decided now, at the highest levels of the Soviet government, that they had to support this new government, and the Soviet Union couldn't be seen backing out of an ally. As the Soviets acted, they had to support the new government. This was a logistical challenge. Once you decide to support a government in Kabul, which is below the major mountain chains of Afghanistan, you've got to secure roads in order to get troops and supplies and equipment down there. Yet, as Soviet army brigades moved down roads, they soon began to face attacks, tiny at first, sometimes only muskets attacked by fighters on camels, at first annoying, and then soon some became deadly. Soviet forces in 1979 were among the best army in the world. They were trained for possible battle in Europe. The Czechoslovakian operation had been extremely successful. They felt they could do that if they needed to, perhaps even in a Western European country. That's what they were trained for. Barrage the enemy with artillery and airstrikes and then smash them with overwhelming numbers. These little raids that they were facing did not allow them the opportunity to immediately use those skills. From 1979 to midway through 1980, it looked like the Soviet Union's invasion was a smashing success. In fact, in America, it was seen as pretty much something that couldn't be turned back. The Soviet Union now had a new client state, one that stretched to the Indian Ocean. And they had a friendly government on border with Iran. We were having quite a bit of trouble with a hostage crisis. This was a double blow for the presidency of Jimmy Carter, but also had implications for American geopolitics. Slowly but surely, though, as the Soviet Union attempted to secure the new government, these small Mujahideen, uh, these small fighters began to become a prickly problem. And eventually, they consolidated with each other and formed a group. Largely, they're known as the Mujahideen. The Mujahideen retreated, then returned as soon as Soviets left. Since armored units wouldn't go chase after Afghanis in the desert or the mountains, the tactics of the Soviets were largely ineffective. One small Mujahideen unit could tie up the front of a convoy, and there was nothing the units in the rear could do. The occupation of Kabul was fast. Units conquered Herat, where the protests had started, Kandahar. These were fast. Some 80,000 troops occupied Afghanistan. Bakal was was installed as president, and from Russia, the radio broadcasted that Amin was planning to turn over Afghanistan to Pakistan, so he had to be removed. The new government would rule in the name of Islam. No one was fooled. The government had no popular support. Mountain fighters who deserted to fight the Amin government were now converted to zealots, were now fighting the new Soviet enemy without much change. Russian made some critical mistakes. The country of Afghanistan is 
tremendous and isolated, a mix of mountain and desert, two terrains that are not great for leading armored convoys, mountain passes with roads, many built up in the period of Soviet friendship with the Afghan government and lined with high peaks on either side. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. Fighters, knowing the territory well, would snipe at Soviet armored columns from this height. Russians, at least initially in the early 80s, in personnel vehicles were unprotected. These weren't armored vehicles. They were personnel convoys where soldiers were exposed. And so soldiers did what they could, ran out of the vehicles to try to escape from the gunfire. And then they'd be isolated and killed. Tanks could be stopped by mines or by other weapons. Bridges were destroyed and fighters attacked with crude weapons. Sometimes the initial t- Mujahideen fighters had nothing more than flintlock muskets or early rifles. But in 1980, the Soviets had free reign up until the middle of the year. Tax started slowly at first and then built. The Politburo in spring of 1980 officially approved the invasion, which may have never been ordered. It was only then that there were some objections from the Soviet Union military that perhaps this Afghan army they were supporting would melt leading them into a fight directly with the Mujahideen. Thus, through 1980 to about 1983, a slow but steady bloodletting began. The Mujahideen did not give many battles, and the Soviets were unable to root them out. As Soviet casualties increased, the troops began to seek revenge. And this led to a political problem for the Soviet Union vis-a-vis the locals. A couple things must be said about the Soviet soldier. One is that... We come at it with a U.S. Western point of view. We don't understand that many of these average soldiers were, of course, just as young as soldiers that we know fighting in Iraq or Afghanistan. But they were also as idealistic in their minds, from their point of view, as any soldier we might know. They saw this, and they were recruited to see this, as an internationalist mission. The Soviet Union saw itself, as we do today, is a large superpower, and it was lending its support to a government that was redistributing land to the people, educating the people, giving women rights, etc. In the Soviet mind, especially for those recruited from thousands of miles away, spanning the nation that was the Soviet Union, they, the soldiers, were the good guys, defending the little guys. Many were told that they'd go to Afghanistan to fight Americans. They were shocked after a few months of service to to see that they were mostly fighting the locals that they thought they'd be protecting. Secondly is that Soviet military service, while not exactly compulsory, was not exactly voluntary either. Recruiting was very strict. Recruits were lied to, you know, in a way even stronger than some of the stories you may hear about U.S. military recruiters. There were no such rules the Soviet Union. Many were swept up by a wave of patriotism in the beginning. And any male of military age who was in the Soviet Union could expect to be harassed 
all over the towns or villages in that country by recruiters if they didn't join the services. It took very little time for the realism of Afghanistan to set in. It was bleak. And there was corruption within the army. There was drug abuse within the army. There was thievery within the army, both among the soldiers and Soviet troops were also thieving from the locals. There was nepotism and corruption. Party members who were the key officers barely fought in combat, but always appeared afterwards to criticize, blame, and punish. There was also a hazing system within the military, and new recruits suffered immensely. But a lot of these realizations came later. In 1980, the Politburo officially approved the Afghanistan invasion. It was decided to stay so the Soviet Union would not lose face. Afghanistan is often compared to Vietnam, and in a sense, that analogy works. A long, protracted struggle. But it appears that not nearly as many soldiers were killed in 79 to 89, and that would be part of the problem. It sounds like a good thing, right? Not as many soldiers killed in Afghanistan as we lost in Vietnam. But this was part of the problem, maybe psychologically. At least initially, this was not considered a war in Afghanistan at all. This was just a convoy operation, one that from time to time became subject to random attacks from unorganized raiders. Yet that was it. There were large gaps in distance and time from one, which you might call a battle or a raid, to another, from one death of a Soviet soldier to another. Yet, the thought of it was always there. Soviets could march from one end of the country to the other unharmed. And in the early years, 1980, 1981, they did so just to prove they could do it. There were operations to go to the middle of the country where the Mujahideen were the strongest and dig trenches just to show that they could do it. Trenches that had no military value. To go through mountains where normally they'd be subject to attack just to show how strong the Soviets were. And they could do that very often unharmed. And then, randomly, an armored rifles unit would be attacked by sharpshooters, aiming at the head or the feet. When soldiers used their superior firepower, they fired into the mountains or into the darkness. They couldn't see their opponents. With each attack, the Mujahideen got more and more confident about what they could do. They learned a lot about their enemy how the Soviet soldiers react. Armored unit tanks battalions very often didn't want to leave their vehicles. Units and personnel carriers often had to because they were exposed. As Soviet units ran away or raced down the road, sometimes they left weapons, grenades, automatic rifles, rocket launchers. These were stolen from the Soviets and made the Mujahideen enemy even stronger. Soviet behavior contributed. Looting among the population was common. Stories of the Soviet soldier reached the countryside. This was a country without much access to television, little access even to radio. Yet, word of mouth spread fast. It was an isolated country where many people didn't even know the names of Tariki and Amin, let alone that there was a new leader now. They thought that Daoud was still president. The Soviets lost some of their credibility among the population, because the soldiers retaliated for losses on convoy missions by attacking villages where they suspected locals had supported the Mujahideen, whether it was true or not. 
They couldn't attack these raiders that kept sniping at them, but they could go after the villages, and sometimes they'd just destroy them with artillery. They were an army with heavy firepower, and they needed someone to use it on. There was no better recruiting tool for the Mujahideen in the early years, 80, 81, 82, 83, than the stories of Soviet soldiers' retaliation and aggression. By late 1980, the Mujahideen were receiving American aid. But this was not, as it might be thought, simply a matter of Americans handing over cash to the Mujahideen. It was brokered through the leader of Pakistan, General Zia. Pakistanis and Saudi Arabians eventually also contributed funds to equip the Mujahideen fighters. Zia was interested in increasing his stature, throwing communists who were uh, thwarting communists who were among his domestic opponents and eliminating a potential neighbor and rival on his border. The aid from the Pakistanis, the Americans, and the Saudi Arabians increased every year until the Soviets left. By the end, Mujahideen units were getting about a billion dollars a year from all these sources. After an increasingly bloody year of 1981 and 1982, this protracted battle of Soviets sending convoys where they needed to support the new government and getting sniped at and killed or lured into desert mountain passes where they could be easily, easily attacked, the Soviets began to develop better tactics. In 82, they started using helicopters to support convoys. The helicopters would fly around the convoys. Now, when the Mujahideen fighters attacked, helicopters would be able to spot them, either kill them directly or land Soviet troops to ferret out where the rebels were. The rebels could no longer hide with the new tactic. This gave the advantage back to the Soviets in this conflict. And although the Mujahideen would still try to attack convoys in certain tunnels or mountain passes or at night where the helicopters weren't as effective, it was a very powerful weapon and the Mujahideen was extremely concerned that they could perhaps not continue their fighting. Two things changed this dynamic. This could have thrown the whole conflict to the Soviet Union. Soviet Union could have rooted out the Mujahideen, had a stable government, and had a seaport nation on their border. Two things changed this dynamic of the Afghan war. One was the introduction of a deadly weapon, and the other was a change in government. As a Politburo member, Mikhail Gorbachev was opposed to the Afghan war, was opposed to going in in the first place, and he berated generals who came into Politburo meetings with reports of obviously faked statistics about how well the war was going. When he would take power in 1985, he wanted to do something about Afghanistan. But even in the non-democratic Soviet Union, there were politics. Now, as we look back in time, we forget that Gorbachev's ascension to power in the Soviet Union was not a foregone conclusion, nor was it an easy thing. After the death of Chernenko, when 
the next leader was being decided, he outmaneuvered his opponents and made sure the two conservatives were not present at the Politburo meeting where his ascendancy was voted on. So Gorbachev, just like any new American president coming in, had a degree of power, had a degree of popularity and support for what he was doing, but not total control. Not wanting to anger conservatives any more than he already had, he decided to give the military one year to finish the Afghanistan operation, and he'd give them a little leeway. It wasn't exactly a surge as we now know it, but it was a little bit less control of the government to see what they could do for the year of 1985, going into 1986. It would not work. It would be an extremely bloody year, mostly because at the same time, Soviet helicopters were mysteriously being shot down. When Soviet engineers and scientists arrived to do forensics, they could only come up to one conclusion, but one they just couldn't believe. Mujahideen tribes seemed to have Stinger missiles, missiles that were only used by the United States. There was no other conclusion. Indeed, through the efforts of, partially through the efforts of officials in the CIA and the Reagan administration, Congressman Charlie Wilson, who there's been a recent movie about, and the negotiations with General Zia in Pakistan, U.S. Stinger missiles were given to the Mujahideen. There was tremendous concern about this in the Reagan administration and the CIA that Essentially, giving Stinger missiles would be like advertising that America was involved in this conflict in Red Square. Those voices of concern were overruled, and the missiles were given to Mujahideen tribes wandering through the country. As a result, the advantage on the Soviet side, which had been seen in 1983 and 1984 and 1985, was now teetering back towards the rebels again as they could shoot down helicopters that attacked them. Freedom of movement was eliminated for the Soviets. Supplying the country and the government, completing their convoys, became deadly again. But if Americans thought that there was gratitude among these new Mujahideen freedom fighters for the supplying of weapons to help the enemies, many of the fighters would not show it. The supplies, remember, came through Pakistan. And money and financing also came from there, and from, the, and, and from Saudi Arabia, including the wealthy son of a construction family, Osama bin Laden. Several of the Mujahideen leaders made it clear that they were not just fighting this northern invader, the Soviet Union. They would fight any invader, and they were fighting the West, or showing they would fight any non-Muslim force that entered their country. Bin Laden particularly fostered this ideology, and he contributed great sums of money to the Mujahideen and developed an entire cave network in Tora Bora near the Pakistani border, where supplies could be shipped in easily. We didn't directly build, as some say, the infrastructure that we're now attacking in Afghanistan. There was also Pakistani sources of money and Saudi Arabian sources of money. But for a while, we were allied with the same people. By 1986, Mikhail Gorbachev had had enough of the Soviet military, of the Afghan invasion, and was bringing the military his criticism and asking him to focus now only on withdrawal of forces rather than securing the country further. 
His criticism was reinforced by public opinion. Newly fueled, always of some importance in the Soviet Union, more than sometimes is stated. It wasn't a completely democratic country, but public opinion always mattered to some extent, kind of in the way that employee opinion kind of and morale kind of matters in a company, not in the way that public opinion and voting matters in a democracy. But now, public opinion was fueled by glasnost, the idea that everything should be publicized and out there for the public. More of the real progress of the war is being detailed in the Soviet media, and not good, not in a good way. Soviets began making steps to get their troops out of Afghanistan after 1986. In an effort to help along this process, the Soviets changed leaders. The new leader, Nuchabala, had support among tribal factions and could hopefully start a new unity government. He did not have, uh, Najibuli uh, had some contacts among tribal leaders and would hopefully start a new unity government. He'd put a few Islamists in the council. His new government would not have any ban on religion, in fact would be said to be based on Islamic law. And Soviet diplomatic officials began talks in Islamabad with General Zia to negotiate a peace deal with the Mujahideen. By the time the Soviets pulled out of Afghanistan and turned over the entire cachet of weapons they had over to the Afghan army, the Afghan army had improved. They now had the ability, perhaps, to put off a resistance, or so the Soviets hoped. When after the Soviet withdrawal, the Mujahideen tried to take the town of Jalalabad, with Osama bin Laden offering to pay as much as $200 per day to any fighter who would join in the crusade against this uh, Afghan government. They were unsuccessful, and the Mujahideen began fighting with each other. The biggest irony of all is that the government under Nujibala would last longer than the Soviet Union itself, who had supported his government. It would not fall until 1992. The war's actual end would take longer than expected. The Soviet Union would limit its patrols and do its best to keep its forces in major cities and bases as they prepared to get soldiers home. But not unlike the Vietnam conflict, where Lyndon Johnson, then Richard Nixon, and Kissinger went through the ordeal of negotiating with the North Vietnamese, with idle talks for a long time through French mediators, the talks that the Soviets engaged with with their enemy were designed first and foremost to earn a sort of peace with honor, the type, the type of peace that looks like something was gained out of starting the conflict in the first place. The Soviets also faced negotiations with its rebel groups in Islamabad. And just as the North Vietnamese kept LVJ and Nixon waiting from 68 to 72, in peace negotiations, because they felt they could probably get a better deal, the Mujahideen seemed in no rush to deal with the Soviets. They wanted to leave, they could leave at any time. They were forcing them out. They were winning the war. Thus, the Soviets spent 1987 and 1988 wanting to end the war in Afghanistan in some way that they could reasonably do saving face, but were unable to do so. Eventually, Pakistan pushed the rebels to accept, and they immediately began fighting with each other. In the end, almost 648,000 Soviet soldiers fought in Afghanistan, not at the same time, but at different times in rotation. Nearly 15,000 died, about 1,200 a year, with some estimates 
being higher. The Soviet Union was a closed society, and very little information was provided to Russian mothers and widows so as not to alarm the public. Hi, it's Bruce. Listen, we all know the news headlines are full of wild stories, like how the world is tipping towards authoritarianism, all while somehow, simultaneously, freezing, flooding, and on fire. It's a lot to take in. But what if, instead of being on the brink of disaster, we're actually on the cusp of a better world? If I've got your attention, then I highly recommend tuning to a podcast that offers a weekly dose of optimistic ideas from smart people. What Could Go Right is the acclaimed news podcast from the Progress Network. Zachary Carabell and Emma Varvalukas dive into the biggest news and most pressing topics of our time, from climate change to politics, and make the case for a brighter future. Season 5 features fascinating guests like democracy scholar Yesha Munk on the hidden perils of identity politics, and NPR anchor Steve Inskeep about the importance of talking to people who differ from you, and what Abe Lincoln learned from those conversations that helped him unify the country. It's time to ditch the doom-scrolling polarization and start focusing on some of the things going right. So check out What Could Go Right wherever you listen to podcasts. But even if the official number was, say, double, it's lower than our losses in Vietnam. Medical training and the presence of medical transport on the ground and transport in the air in the 1980s helped to stave off casualties. At no one time was there a tremendous battle the way you'd see in a Civil War, say, or World War I, where many soldiers were lost at once. It was slowly but surely, bit by bit, Chinese water torture. As in our Iraq War, the percentage of wounded versus those killed was higher in the Soviet War in Afghanistan than normal. Instead of the normal three-to-one men, uh, there was nearly 150,000 wounded versus the official number of 15,000 killed, perhaps a bit more. For these soldiers, there was the same type of post-traumatic stress and other problems that affected soldiers in Vietnam. But there was additional problem of returning not to a democracy, but returning to a collapsing communist country. Initially, they were heroes, and they earned medals. They had done their internationalist duty. Some were getting a guaranteed pensions. In fact, some could expect as they got older to get double, triple, or quadruple pensions given as a bonus for recruiting. They, of course, would never receive them because within three years of returning from Afghanistan, there would be no Soviet Union. Afghan army veterans formed groups to support each other. And this was the only help that veterans received as Soviet Union became Russia and a very troubled early capitalist country. Forced by the tragic events of 2001, the United States entered the uncivilized wasteland, probably the most uncivilized on earth, an obvious training ground for terrorists. We had previously tomahawked missile the sites under President Clinton. Terrorists from around the world came here to train. We entered for fairly logical reasons. The Taliban refused to give up our enemy, the nation's enemy, Osama bin Laden. So they became an enemy. The initial war in Afghanistan, that of October and November 2001, consisted of four elements, at least, that we know about. One was an air war in which anything military the Taliban had, any government building that could be used to command things, was incinerated. 
The second was a small contingent of U.S. special forces supporting Afghan troops fighting the Taliban and engaging in special operations. Third was the Northern Alliance, a group of anti-Taliban Afghans who, with our money and support and our airstrikes, would quickly gain on the Taliban military and take Kabul. But in a fourth wave, in a fourth wave, CIA agents roamed the country of Afghanistan, bribing tribesmen to turn against the Taliban to the Northern Alliance, getting information, in some case killing terrorists with drones. It was in many ways a new kind of war, a brilliant war, a war that looked more like the post-Vietnam wars we had seen. Grenada, Panama, Gulf War, Serbia, than it was in the wars to come. The early part of the Afghanistan operation was a long-distance war and a covert war. Not a cheap one, but an effective one. And after 9-11, no war since World War II seemed as justified. Nearly 88% of the American people supported the war in Afghanistan. In addition, we had the support of the world. British, French, German, Dutch, Polish troops, and other nations supporting us. The operation in Afghanistan, successful in a few months in rooting out the Taliban from from Kabul, the capital, and ultimately their own stronghold in Kandahar. I I tend to think that if it had not been followed by years of protracted involvement that will taint its memory, this Afghanistan operation would be seen as great an American jolly good war as our operation against the Barbary Pirates, the Mexican War, 1898, the Spanish-American War, or our pushing of Saddam Hussein from Kuwait. There was, however, one consequence is using of using a kind of hired army and simply supporting them. And that is that it's fairly clear from available intelligence reports that Osama bin Laden and the leader of the Taliban, Mullah Omar, escaped into the tunnel network in Tora Bora. And by the time an army could be built up, because you needed CIA recruits to build up the anti-Taliban forces, in some cases paying them, bribing warlords, whatever had to be done, to get an army to get over there, it is likely that Osama bin Laden escaped. This would sort of taint the overall, the way the war was viewed, but also the resurgence of the Taliban afterwards would have a big impact in how the war has been perceived. According to the Bob Woodward accounts, the Bush administration initially from moment one sought to convert the war against the Taliban and al-Qaeda to a war against Saddam Hussein in Iraq. At this point, however, the main push within the Bush administration was coming from Vice President Cheney and Defense Secretary Donald Rumsfeld. Colin Powell, the Secretary of State, and at least initially Condoleezza Rice, National Security Advisor at this time, rejected the idea. Focus on one war at a time. President Bush initially considered the idea, at least brought it up at cabinet meetings and at national security meetings in the White House, but eventually rejected any kind of immediate attack against Iraq after 9-11. But by spring 2002, General Tommy Franks, in charge of the Afghanistan operation at CENTCOM in Tampa, Florida, was surprised to be told to start planning for an invasion of Iraq now. The invasion of Iraq, there was no other way, called for troops to be pulled from Afghanistan. That was the only way Franks could do it, given the level of support that he was allowed and the level of troops he was allowed from the administration. It was this event and the buildup and the attack on Iraq 
that led eventually to the resurgence of the Taliban. Starting in 2003, NATO forces started experiencing attacks. At first, they were pretty easily fought off, but the, the attacks started getting more intense. By 2006, the worst year for the war in Iraq, it was clear that there was a Taliban resurgence. By 2008, generals in Afghanistan concluded that they could not stop the Taliban. It could sustain itself indefinitely, while Americans could, not unlike the Soviets, just control the main cities. The government of Hamid Karzai, installed after the fall of Kabul in 2001, is sometimes ridiculed within the country. His brother is alleged to have ties with opium dealers. Some of his officials in his government are known to be corrupt. And because he only has control of the cities, he's sometimes ridiculed as the mayor of Kabul rather than the leader of the Taliban. And a lot of effort goes into his own personal security, which kind of demonstrates the insecure condition of the nation. As President Obama took over, he was in a precarious position politically on the war in Afghanistan. Because he had opposed the war in Iraq, Obama focused in his campaign on the war in Afghanistan being the right war as a contrast to the to the war in Iraq. When he became president, the Bush administration had already de-escalated Iraq. But it made it difficult for Obama to slow down, to criticize generals, to exercise control of the military in Afghanistan's situation. Eventually, after meeting with his generals, he agreed to a surge in the troop strength in Afghanistan in 2009, but only in combination with an 18-month withdrawal, which, at least according to a book by Jonathan Alter, he combined with an agreement from the key generals not to oppose the withdrawal when it came, as they had to agree to it initially. So we have another large superpower in the same places as the Soviet Union was, Kandahar, Kabul. We even occupied Bagram Air Force Base, which, which was the main Soviet center. And now, nine years, just about as long as the Soviets were in Afghanistan, although not with the full contingents of troops that they had all that time. The initial logic of the invasion to get bin Laden, to force a government to hand over bin Laden, and to root out a government that was training terrorists in its camp, was logical, though possible, but not probable at this point. Now, it is to mostly to prevent this nation from becoming a training ground again. John Keegan, in his book, Face of Battle, talks about the abolition of true battle in the 21st century. He wrote the book, in the late 70s, so it has to be seen with that perspective. He indicates that the cruelty required for battle, the sacrifice required for battle, the compilation required to get troops to fight in battle would not be possible with modern men. He did this after an analysis of three battles, Ag Agincourt, Waterloo, and the Somme. Yet these are all battles where one army faced another, one modern army faced another, modern army for its time. When one of the armies in the battle is not modern, the equation changes. Their desire to fight changes. So you have one army with modern weapons and another army without them, but that uses tactics to try to make up the difference. Wars become increasingly impersonal, and this is something Keegan noted in his book long ago. The whole country is not thrown into the war in Afghanistan. We do see it on TV, but on the ground, the fighting, the battle is intense. The war in Afghanistan that nine years prior was the most popular war since World War II is now no longer so. The goal to defeat the Taliban has not changed, yet a public 
weary of the war, and a president ostensibly elected to end the war in Iraq, or elected perhaps to register disapproval with that war in Iraq, is faced with a continuing war of his own. The Iraq-Afghanistan example demonstrates that even a sole superpower, such as the U.S., must calculate what it can realistically do, especially in simultaneous operations, and not allow exceptionalism, jingoism, to enter into the equation. It's been proved in the Iraq and Afghanistan example. When we entered Iraq, we did so clearly at the expense of Afghanistan, proving that there are limits, even in a military-friendly administration, as one could say about the Bush administration. There were limits put on the military about how many troops they could raise and how much they could do. Now, I don't agree with John Keegan that we will see the abolition of battle because it's too cruel for modern men. Battle has not been abolished, but the type of battle as we used to see it has. I don't think we'll see two armies facing each other in the battlefield, and so what you'll see is these protracted guerrilla-type conflicts. Given our short history with them, and given the Soviet example, it probably does us well to avoid these type of conflicts. Geopolitics aside, I look at the politics of the situation. Despite the assertion, fairly commonly made, that there's no difference anymore between the past two presidents, Obama or Bush, I do not think that's true. I think there's an illusion going on. No one can enter office, snap their fingers, and change the situation in the world. We have two very different types of drivers behind the steering wheel. The Bush administration was deferential to the military. It engaged in strategic offense. President Obama is skeptical of the military. And while he will, as he committed in the campaign, to own the Afghanistan war, I wouldn't anticipate any new attempts at regime change under his presidency. President Obama will look for a foreign policy victory to earn his place in the White House and to counteract what has been a recent downward trend in his presidential performance and perception of that performance. While that foreign policy victory is somewhat vague and could come from anywhere, the theater of operations would appear to be Afghanistan most logically. That's where American Forest is located currently. A successful withdrawal and conclusion of the U.S. military presence in Afghanistan, that is to say, our troops leaving with a surviving Afghan government and at least a stable force controlling the country, whether it's Hamid Karzai or someone else, could be considered could be considered a positive for him in terms of his foreign policy, in terms of his presidential performance, akin to the Eisenhower presidency where getting the U.S. out of Korea was seen as a successful foreign policy for the Eisenhower administration. Again, a war that he didn't start, but he owned once he took over. There's no hope for this, for the 2010 midterms. No hope for anything in Afghanistan. Not enough time for anything there to affect the elections except in a negative way. But for 2012, it's most likely that the Afghanistan conflict should be resolved. Of course, neither the White House nor the military will admit that political considerations are involved. There's also a likelihood that withdrawal will be negotiated. UN envoys have apparently been contacted by Taliban, and that could be the start of something, that neutral ground that could lead to a U.S. negotiated settlement. Such a negotiated withdrawal would mean, uh, would mirror the Vietnam talks of Kissinger's 
in Paris, or the Soviet meetings in Islamabad in 1987 to resolve their conflict. We negotiate a way to give ourselves a good reason to go home. That's, you know, you look at the Vietnam Peace Accords, and it essentially says that any North Vietnamese fighter that's in South Vietnam is allowed to stay. And the U.S. is going to pull out as long as no new North Vietnamese enter South Vietnam. Essentially an excuse to leave. You negotiate with your enemy that you've had this protracted battle with to try to find a way to get out. I looked at the story of the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan, of course, to mirror or imply a mirror or connection with the present conflict. And it certainly is eerie that we fight in some of the same places and fight some of the same people in some of the same caves, mountains, and deserts where the Soviets did. Some of these people we had supported against the Soviets. And it is eerie that our resolution goal is basically the same, that the U.S. keeps its face, keeps its credibility in the world, but that we have our troops withdrawn and that we have a government whose forces can defend itself. But what are the lessons for the future in all of this? Does the example of the Soviet Union and then our example of Iraq and Afghanistan mean we never invade a country again? I tend to think the Obama administration will not, or would be very hesitant to do so. And I'll add to that. I think whether it is only one term of the Obama administration, two terms, or, or you know whether Republicans take over the White House, I'm not sure I will see a new hunger for offense on the part of either party, even in a Republican administration. Air war, tomahawks, strong statements against our enemies, anyone who supports terrorists, special ops, CIA, drones, I think we'll see all of that and maybe even ramped up. Ground troops invading a new theater of war, I'm not sure we'll see that in some time. Very often you'll hear the phrase, history repeats itself. It's also true that the present repeats itself. That's another way of looking at it. It is the present to those leaders who have to make the tough decisions. It's all great for us, and I acknowledge this as a person who looks at history, to sit and read history books and say, oh, should have done that, could have done that. The leaders experience it now, and it's always new to them. Yet, you have to learn from history as well. There has to be a balance there. This is hindsight. Our operation in 2001 in Afghanistan was logical. It was supportable. The Soviet invasion in 1979 from their own foreign policy view was also logical and supportable supportable given their goals, given their need to secure the border of the Soviet Union. It made all the geopolitical sense in the world. They got bogged down, as did we, but it didn't change the validity of the initial Operation Enduring Freedom. Nor could we be silly and say, the Soviets should have left things the way they were. Or we should have let the Taliban do as we please. Oh, you don't want to turn over Osama bin Laden or give up any of your terrorist training camps? Okay, well, we're not going to do anything about it. Future military operations should be compared with all of these efforts. The successes we've had, Gulf War, Mexican War, perhaps even our short intervention, relatively short intervention in World War One, World War Two but also with the Soviet war in Afghanistan, the Iraq war, and our own Afghanistan war. These historical examples should be considered by leaders making decisions in the future that they face in the present. 
I think the lessons are this. We have to have realistic objectives. We have to steer clear of owning governments. Uh, Colin Powell made a suggestion to President Bush that if you break it, you bought it. That was true in Iraq. Once you break it, you bought it. You change the regime, you now own that regime and have to support it. There has to be another way to go about that. Do we work through other forces in the country so it's always maybe us behind the scenes, but not us directly changing the regime and thus being forced to support a government, which quickly loses support among the people. An anonymous Taliban sent the U.S. ambassador to Afghanistan a note, and it said, you own the watches, we own the time. The Soviets, in their decade-long struggle, found that out. Again, 15,000 losses. That's the official number, of course. The number of losses was not the issue. It was the constant bloodletting, the psychological damage, and eventually economic damage that it was doing to the country. In our military considerations, we must own the time. Any military operation should consider the long term and how to avoid entanglement. If any organization has a particular skill, you do well. Well, look at the operations we've had. 1848, 1898, 1944, D-Day, 1990, 2003, the initial invasion of Iraq, 2001, the initial invasion of Afghanistan and the capturing of Kabul and Kandahar. Quick operations that show American firepower, lightning speed. But part of military planning must be how do we avoid the entanglement that comes after. Have to make more moves on the chessboard. As General Petraeus mentioned in a 1987 Pentagon speech, public support will wane after a few years and must be considered in military operations. After the first year of American involvement in any conflict, simply must be planned. It's just going to happen. Use our power where we can be most effective, use it quickly, and find a way to withdraw. That must be part of the initial battle planning. It seems somewhat simplified. I believe it is. I still think it's something that could be considered more. Hope this has been useful. Let me delve a little bit into military history. A couple of the books that have been useful to me on this one. John Keegan's Face of Battle. Just a great book on what it's actually like to fight a war. Gregory Fiefer, F-E-I-F-E-R. The Great Gamble about the Soviet war in Afghanistan. That was a big source, as well as looking at some of the original Soviet memos and some things on the internet about the Soviet war in Afghanistan. I want to thank you for listening. Websites My History can be to purepolitics.com. Uh, plug for the Facebook site. The archives available for $14.99. Wide range of topics. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts.